We're really nervous about doing this session. Um, I'm particularly worried that you're going to think that we are saying to you that our experience should be normative and that this is exactly what your life should be or that we're saying we've got all the answers. We haven't and we're hoping that this will be a bit of a, a warts and all. This is what's happened to us. It's not going to be systematic in terms of this is what you should therefore do um, and it'll just be some observations along the way. So um, the first thing I suppose is where we're currently at. Um, top left-hand corner is Sophie's wedding day. Sophie's 21, she's our firstborn and she got married to Josh on the left about eight weeks ago. And that's Luke um, on the right, that's a selfie that he took. Um, and Luke's 20 and he's in second year doing, I lose track because he does weird stuff at uni. I think he's doing Roman history at the moment and he's the only boy in a pride and pursuit and he got he got a round of applause when he came in he thought that was pretty good so um <laughs> so a roadmap for where we're going to go in this session um we're going to talk about the early stages for us then we're going to have a think about what was it like when the children were small and church was kind of like taking off. Um, then we're going to think about the fact that we left that church plant after 11 years, um, had a bit of a break in the middle and then started church planting all over again. What was that like? Um, we're thinking about also teenagers. I know that a lot of you guys don't have teenagers yet, but they will become teenagers before you realise it and you've actually got to start planning for them to become teenagers now um, because some of the grooves that you'll get into start now. Um, but we also want to encourage you that some of the really bad stuff that happened to us will probably happen to you, but it's okay. And um, we also want to talk about the other woman, which isn't as bad as it sounds, and then we're going to have time for questions. Yeah, so I guess the, hopefully the thing that will hold this session together is us talking about how our marriage and ministry went through different phases and stages and what the, the challenges are with that. You can actually see on the, the back of your sheet um, just a, a few of the different kind of, I guess, models or, or situations your marriage might find itself in at different stages of ministry. And yeah, the traditional model, I guess, is where uh, the wife's full-time job is to support her husband as the minister, but she's got a key role in church, but it's not up front. Uh, the two-for-one model is where both husband and wife are, are up the front and have uh, key roles. There's the independent model where uh, the wife doesn't see herself or uh, particularly as having leadership or particular ministry gifts but is an enthusiastic member of the congregation. There's, um, I guess, especially with church planning, the economic survival model, where the wife works while things start up. And then the two-career model, where perhaps the husband works in the church plant while the wife um, w <coughs> works in a secular job. There's lots of other models in between there. You might identify particularly with some, one of those particular models, or the shades of grey, you might think we're kind of a bit like that or a bit like this. We found ourselves at different parts of the story in all of those different models. And maybe this might be slightly controversial, but what I want to say is none of those models are wrong, but they all have strengths and weaknesses. And you need to be thinking really clearly about what the strengths and weaknesses are of those different models. And you need to be talking together about 
where you are and where things are at. Uh, things will change as, the, as your church plant changes, as, as for example, kids come along, uh, all those kinds of things. And to be constantly talking about where are we actually at now, uh, what, what's working for us, what's not working for us, uh, will be uh, really important things. And to, um, I guess, to sort of realise there's often a sense of uh, grief and adjustment when, when you make those kinds of changes. The only other thing to say with that is I think quite often what we've done is we've pretended that we were doing a different model to the one we were actually doing because we wished that we were doing that one. And then surprise, surprise, that actually caused an enormous amount of stress because reality didn't match it. But I think the reason we did that was because at some point we thought that a particular model was the correct one. Um, So I think I've spent probably most of the last 25 years feeling vaguely guilty that I wasn't what I should be. Uh, And I guess as we go through the other thing, just maybe you'll spot at different points, is that one of the big issues I think particularly in church planning is boundaries between family life and married life and and in your ministry together and uh, and how you cope with that at different stages. There's there's huge role ambiguity. You know, am I am I his PA? Am I his co-worker? Am I his wife? And what hat am I wearing in this conversation? And what hat does he think I'm wearing in this conversation? There's all sorts of things about physical and emotional, you know, uh, ambiguity and the crossing of boundaries uh, as the church plant grows. Um, how, you know, how, and how that affects your your roles. So, do you have those conversations about church in the bedroom, at the kitchen table? Is this a conversation that we should have in the church office? Uh, all those kind of issues of, you know, when you're not getting on with your boss. You come home and download about that, but when you're working together in ministry, all those things become really complicated. Next stage. stage. Okay. So, first stage. Shut up. Okay. (laughs) Uh, We we finished college. We were dropped into a postcode in uh, the outer west of Sydney with an an ill-chosen core group that were chosen for us. It was a time where we had lots of conflict and difficulty uh, in the core group and in the early stages of the church plant. And I guess to sum it up, up, we had very little idea what we were doing. We made lots of avoidable rookie errors. There was lots of fun about it, it but it was a very tough time for our marriage. We'd married 18 months when we started. Uh, We both come from non-Christian families. We didn't have a coach or a mentor or that kind of thing. Uh, by accident, more than design, we um, connected up with a couple of other couples, uh, the, uh, Ray and Sandy Galea and uh, Stephen Carroll Gooch. Yeah, okay. Um, and we, I guess, in a peer kind of way, we supported each other as we kind of bumped into the furniture and, and made our, our mistakes together. The thing I think that typified this stage for us was we had no kids. We had no existing friendships in the area. We were parachuted into a new area. So we really lived and breathed the church plant. It felt like 24-7 in a way that was hugely exciting but had huge costs for us as well. 
Um, so it really felt like a bit of a hot house for us. And within the first 12 months, the excitement um, very much wore off and we started to unravel. Um, and that unraveling basically showed in me being angry pretty much all day, every day. Um, I was very angry and I didn't know why and I was frightened by how angry I was. And I thought, I've heard that people get angry when they have children because that's really stressful, but we haven't got children yet, so what's my excuse? Why am I so angry? Um, we eventually went to counselling um, against my better judgement because I felt like that was so much waving the white flag that I was a failure and that if I was going to be successful in ministry, I shouldn't need to go to a counsellor. I should be able to sort this out on my own. And so we eventually went to counselling and, um, yeah, I, it came out fairly quickly that it was all the same things that um, – I've forgotten their names. Who are the two people that were talking? Scott and Kim. That's it. Sorry. Remember the, yesterday they were talking about the two needs that men and women have – in terms of women need affection and conversation, men need sex and someone that will actually be fun with them. I think the thing that came out was more the stuff that Paul Tripp, Dan Allender and Larry Crabb talk about. So again on your sheet there's a box at the bottom. It came out that the issues for us were all around what they talk about security and significance. Um, hands up if you already have thought about all this stuff with Tripp and, and Crabb. A few nods. Um, there are some question marks over Crabbe's theology, blah, 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 but I still think this is really, really quite helpful. Basically, men have a desire to feel like they count, that what they do actually matters and that they're appreciated for what they do. Um, and women basically have a desire to feel valued and safe and secure. And the demands that we therefore make on each other is I demand from Craig that he makes me feel treasured and cherished and he basically demands that I make him feel good, that, that I make him feel like he's a real man who's successful but in real, most marriages that's the opposite of what happens and so he feels insecure because I see through his pretenses. He can pretend to be really, really fantastic with everybody else. And that's why I think Kim really helpfully said yesterday, that's why we have affairs. Because everybody else thinks, and that's why men um, in ministry are in danger, because a lot of women will actually develop crushes on your husband because they see him up the front as commanding, articulate, and he talks about his feelings constantly. And they think, I'd like to have sex with a man like that. Whereas you see, yeah, yeah, he spent 45 minutes being articulate talking about his feelings and then he comes home and just sits on the couch and ignores me <laughs> because he's used up all of his loveliness with everybody else and I get the dregs. So basically I think in Craig's best moments during those first years of the church plant, when he wanted to involve me in stuff, he was wanting to communicate to me, I think you are a bright, intelligent woman and I value your wisdom and your input and I'd love you to be part of it. But in his worst moments, he was saying, I'm scared and you need to make me look good. You need to come through for me. And on Saturday night, when everybody else rings up and says that they're going to drop off the rosters, you're going to step up, Kath, because you can do it at the last minute. Um... In my best moments, I was wanting to be really useful and joyfully, graciously serving. And in my worst moments, I was just feeling, you're using me. And so my anger basically came from a sense of powerlessness and 
and feeling like I just wanted to rebel. I just wanted to say, no, do it yourself. And I really hope that everyone works out what a loser you really are at home. Do you know, like, that was what was secretly going on for me. Um, and that took a long time for us to work through. But that's been a real game changer for us to work through that issue of security and significance. And we continue 25 years down the track to have to keep stopping and working out. Why, how am I, instead of running to the gospel, to the one who can give me that, that security, why am I demanding it of my rom-com prince? And when Craig should run to the gospel because the God of all grace knows him and treasures him regardless of his performance, why does he instead expect me to come through for him? So we keep having to relearning. And I'm frustrated. I keep thinking... Surely by our 10th wedding anniversary, we will have nailed this and moved on. But I get the impression talking to people who are married millions of years that that's still what they have to keep coming back to, uh, which is discouraging but in encouraging as well. Um, that it's just something this side of heaven we're just going to have to keep working on. Get the microphone up, Kathy Pussy really starts telling you what it was like. Um, uh, I guess for me in that early stage... Um, when it was the two of us against the world, starting with church planning. For me, the things that really uh, worked against me, uh, you know, really pressed my significance buttons and really made me prickly and insecure. There were some things particularly about church planning, I think. We were totally invested in the church plant. It was our whole world emotionally. And so you have this roller coaster of there's a week where three new people turn up and everything's great. And then there's a week where, where three, you know, three less people turn up and it's a complete disaster. And your emotions are up and down with so little to, to mitigate that. Um, I guess you go from a, a life at college where everything's structured for you with timetables and exam deadlines to a week that far more than anyone else in ministry and church planning is just totally fluid and you've got to work out how you're gonna do, how you're gonna do stuff, and some weeks in the early stages felt like there wasn't enough to do, and other weeks felt like there was way too much to do, and and all of that just made me feel very pressured and very very easy for me to, to overwork uh, in that period. It was interesting. Um, I think the other thing that kind of pressed my uh, insecurity buttons as well was my mates I'd been at college with. They looked at church planning as this kind of exciting, romantic thing that was way easier than the kind of uh, established church context that context they'd gone to. And they couldn't for the life of them work out why I would need support or things would be difficult for me. And um, that actually contributed to me, I think, feeling quite lonely in that period. And again, leaning on Kathy uh, rather than uh, looking for support in other places. Uh, in this early stage... Yeah, overwork was the big issue and we really needed to work at, I think it was said, said yesterday, planning our days off, planning and booking our holidays in, working out what we're going to do before we get there because if you're emotionally exhausted when you get to your day off, you spend your whole day arguing about what you're going to do on your day off and, and it's gone and, and nothing's actually happened. Yeah, there was a problem with bleach at one point. Um, with my hair. <laughs> um, we had two babies 19 months apart and just a few random thoughts. Um, I found Sundays particularly difficult because it was just single mothering and 
as church got bigger, that was okay because there were more people around. You could share your children around. But in the really early days of the church plant, uh, there was no one to mind my kids. And so I felt like at six o'clock in the morning, Craig had just disappeared off to do whatever he does. And I just had the kids on my own. And then until about 10 o'clock that night, I was just on my own thinking, woo, church planning. Um, that was, I found a really difficult stage. The other thing I found difficult through the week was Craig was physically around because he didn't have an office because we were just doing everything out of our house, as most of you guys are doing, unless some benefactor's given you money and you've got an office or something. The thing I found hard was that he was around the house and even if I was sobbing with frustration with the kids, he needed to get his work done. And that was a source of great tension for us in terms of when was it okay for me to say, Craig, I really need you? And when was it not? When was that actually illegitimate to do that? If he was a dentist, when would I ring him up and say, come home, I'm not coping? But he was just there. Why would it kill him to just hang on to a kid for a second while I wipe poo off the other one? Like, you know, but his take was, yeah, but that happens so often. That's the reason I don't get my day off is because I can't actually get my work done. You know, so um, I haven't got any answers to that, but I just want to resonate with you that that was my experience of I just want some help and you you won't. Whereas he said, I can't. And we never really worked out the won't and the can't. Probably half the battle with that is just talking about that. Uh, no, maybe quarter of the quarter. Maybe a little bit it helps to talk about that and acknowledge those things are actually happening. Um, for my experience at this stage was that the church was growing and my responsibilities at church were growing, uh, but our family was starting to grow as well. Uh, one of the things that happened was I was out more and more evenings. It was a time to meet with men uh, to... To, to run uh, meetings and as church grew as well if church was to grow then the leadership team needed to evolve from just Kathy and I to to draw in others and there's lots of things that uh, we had to adjust to with that um, with the whole thing of feeling like a shift worker because you're often working on weekends and evenings uh, one of the things we tried to do with that is say some things are lousy about this but there are actually some positives about that and to, and to make sure we, we exploited the positives. Uh, so often I'd try and trade afternoons for evenings. Uh, I'd be at the school gate at 3 o'clock. Uh, so stop work earlier, be around from 3 till 7, even if I was then out in the evening. It was kind of great to be the only dad at the sports carnival who could actually flex his week to do that, or the only dad who went up to help with reading. Um, we lived in, um, in Blacktown and... Uh, Sometimes uh, when the kids were in, I don't tell the education department this, but sometimes when the forecast was snow in the mountains, we'd just take them out of uh, school for the day and just drive up and, and see the snow. And it was just good to remind ourselves and even remind the kids that this is, there's some things that are hard for us, but there's some things that actually can work well for us. Uh, Kathy's written in my notes matinee sex as well as uh, one of the advantages of flexing those things. And um, I guess the other thing was just consciously balancing the big weeks and the small weeks. So you have a week where everything goes wrong and you're never at home and you need to sort of uh, work out how that works out in, in the weeks to come and get some, get some time back, if you like. Um, be careful what you wish for. I think this would happen 
I don't know because I've never I've never gone into a church that's existing. My guess is that if you go into an existing church, a whole lot of the things that we're talking about happen, but like because they change and you take on staff and all that kind of stuff. My guess is though that there's that's actually buffered by the fact that you've got other existing structures in the church. I think part of the thing in church planting is that because you start often from zero or eight or ten people, the changes feel a lot more like a big step up. I'm just guessing that because I, I haven't got any other experience. But um, a big turning point came for me when we started taking on leaders and tapping bright women on the shoulder and bringing them in uh, to that kind of central, I felt really shifted out. Part of me was incredibly relieved. Part of me just thought, excellent, I really, really don't care about a whole lot of these things and I'm really happy to stop thinking about them and I'm happy that our marriage can actually be more than Western Blacktown Presbyterian Church. Uh, I loved that. But at the same time, I was feeling really disenfranchised and pushed out and that was when Craig got that rabbit in the headlights kind of fearful look. He couldn't often guess when was I happy and when was I sad about that? And that was partly because I wasn't sure either. But he did get that. You probably, I think, are aware of that look that your husbands get thinking, oh, whatever happens is going to be bad. You know, like, um, because I couldn't anticipate as the changes came which ones I'd be happy about and which ones I'd feel really offended by until it actually happened and it had hit me like a truck and it was too late. So at that point, we just had to stop and talk and apologise and cry and blah, blah, blah. We didn't actually get much better at that because the changes, it's a bit like your children growing up. You know when they're kind of like small enough to walk under the the edge of the bench in the kitchen and then one day they wake up and they smack their head against it? You kind of, you know that one day that's going to happen but you don't realise that that was going to be that particular Tuesday and you just play catch up. I think it feels like the same with that with church planting. As much as you can think ahead that you know those changes are coming, they will just hit you like a truck and you've just got to go, oh, bum, how, how do we actually support each other through that um, and be kind to each other? Um, I think as well, I had to consciously choose to step back from leadership to let other women shine. And my observation just anecdotally is that some church plants that stagnate, it's often because the wife doesn't feel comfortable stepping back and letting that happen because as competent as you are if you are the only woman doing everything everything will stop at you and if you want that to happen and you're happy to work 97 hours a week go for it but I think intentionally we need to work out it needs to grow past us not not maybe the rate determining step but that's a really painful process to work out how that happens in in my experience. I guess as our as our formal leadership grew, and these are our kind of our our el- they, were, well, they just disappeared. They're our elders at um, DPC, uh, sorry, at, um, at Blacktown. Um, yeah, the change that I noticed was that all of our previous big strategic ministry decisions had been made in the bedroom by Kathy and I, and now uh, I I made those decisions at leaders meetings where Kathy would sometimes hear about those decisions in church for the first time and that was a huge shift for her and a huge shift for me and one of the big uh the skills I think I never really got on top of but tried to work on was uh talking to Kathy how much to keep her in the loop with everything that's happening as church as church got bigger uh how much to to not bother her with some things and um and I guess more as, as time went on and then we had the kids around 
make formal times to catch up and talk about what's happening at church, but also make sure we had times in our diary that were able to talk about not church and talk about us and not try and mix those two those two meetings together. Uh, and to do that well, we we instituted a Friday lunchtime thing where we'd go and just have tie on Fridays at lunch and um, and do the do the church kind of thing there. Um, say more, but we should press on. Um, three months ago, we had one of our um, regular newcomer afternoon teas where the people that are new to church come and we kind of tell them, you know, what Presbyterians believe, blah, 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 how they can be involved in church. And I, I was doing my normal shtick that I do about how to be involved in a home group and I could see Craig kind of going, you know, like, and it was after everyone left, he said, you're actually not on message. Um, we've actually changed the whole process that, that happens and you're actually off message. And so I was kind of like, fine, I just won't say anything now. Do you know... But then I kind of went, no, all right, then that's fine. It's not, a, it's not an indictment on me that I'm a bad whatever I am, um, but it, it still keeps happening. Um, even at this kind of, you know, we're about to leave that church plant, but I'm still off target, you know. So um, the, I suppose the second random thing I want to say is it's easy to become whiny when I'm tired and only see the negative stuff. And, to, and like Craig said, the fact that you can on a Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock decide, hey, you're going to be out the next three nights, let's have sex now, it, that's, that's the kind of positive problem-solving way to get into it. But when I get tired, I really do become a whinger and I can't see the positive. Um, I need other women around me to keep reminding me of what those positives can be. Um, and so I think it's partly finding other women who are positive with me. They have to be close enough that I don't feel like they're being kind of Pollyanna with me. They have to be the kind of real people. Um, otherwise, it just irritates me and makes me feel um, more kind of judged. Um, but I think it's important as well as church planters that we don't think that we are some kind of weird breed, that somehow it's so much harder for us because we're church planting. Um, I don't think it is. I think it's just different. So don't fall into the trap of thinking this is hard because I just think life in a fallen world is hard. And so yours is just one different variety of it. The women in your congregations, as, as Kim said yesterday, they will have husbands who don't get to have flexible time. You know, they leave at six in the morning and they get back at eight at night. Do you know, um, it's too easy. And I think it really does hack off the women in our congregations when we get a bit whiny. It's good to be honest with them, but I think try and understand their world as much as they understand ours. Um, but again, I still get sad and angry and frustrated. I haven't fixed that problem, unfortunately. Finishing and starting all over again. Okay. Uh, next stage was finishing and starting all over again. Um, I guess there's probably a whole hour session to do to talk about when do you actually leave a church plant, why do you leave it, and how do you go about doing that. I guess just to do the, the two-sentence summary and not spend too long on this stage, we, um, I guess our view has always been that the hardest transition a church plant will ever do is when the planning pastor leaves and the next person comes along. And so you want to do that when things are the healthiest they can be. Uh, often what actually happens is you stay on until the wheels have started to fall off, and then you think, oh, I'm not doing a good job here anymore, and I'll move on. And so we've, we've tried in both the church plants we've been involved in to pick when things are strong and going well and make that the time to leave.
but that I won't talk any more about that. I guess the, the only thing to mention here is um, something that we did, again, more by accident than by design, that was very helpful was we'd have a deliberate 12-month review where we'd actually mark a week in our calendars. We'd take a couple of days away. We'd talk about the last year, about what had worked and not worked in our marriage and our marriage in ministry and what we thought the next 12 months was going to be like. We tried to make it a time where we affirmed the good things as well as talked about the difficulties. Um, and that was the time where we actually talked about is now the time to move on. And, and, and we stayed 11 years at Blacktown, so for 10 years the answer was no and the 11th year the answer was yes. I guess looking back on it, part of the reason that was helpful was it's great to park that question... Uh, and deal with it only every every now and again, rather than every Monday morning when you're tired and frustrated, having that conversation about how you're sick of it and you want to move on. And uh, because it, you, every Monday you'll feel like that. Morning Herald. He'd get the Sydney Morning Herald out. This is before the interweb was invented, and he would look through for IT jobs, saying, "Yep, I could still do that one. Yep, I could still do that one." So, I mean, we joke about it, but he honestly did look for those jobs, thinking, "You know, I really am, you know, ill-suited to this. It's too hard." Um, and so, it happened probably in the early stages, at least one week in seven. Totally freaked me out until I realised this is just his whisker preening. So. At first it was a six-month review, then it was a 12-month review. I felt incredibly loved by that as well because I honestly did think that it, it was a proper review. It wasn't just Craig, you know, ticking the box, have we done our review? I honestly did feel that if I said, for one of the kids' sake or for my sake we need to leave, I, I honestly believe that he would have done it. And that just made me feel loved. And the fact that I knew the six-month review was coming was enough to keep me going in those times when I felt really taken for granted either by him or by the situation. Do they know what whisker preening means? I don't know if that's a... If you've got a pet rat, you can tell when your pet rat's nervous and anxious because he starts to do this all the time. That's their nervous reaction, so that's what it means. Uh, okay, uh, when they're no longer little children. Um, just the way that it worked for us, as we... So we left Blacktown, started Dremoyne, and this is what the kids looked like on the first day of school when we started at Dremoyne. So they were in... Um, oh. So this is them. Um, we moved halfway through Luke's kindergarten year and Soph was in year two. I think in some ways... I was just chatting to the Eakins about this before. I think in some ways the period when you've got really, really tiny children, I found the probably the hardest because I was the most emotionally fragile, the tiredest. Um, and just the most uncertain of where I fitted. I reckon, and maybe it's just really bad parenting, but I reckon the primary school years are pretty a bit easier because you basically just pack a lunchbox, you know, like, Mum, where are my shin pads? Girls, when they hit year five, will have some dramas, but generally it's fairly much you just feed them, water them. Do you know, like, it, it does. So if you've got small children, it, I think it does get easier. Um, it, like people will say, oh, it just gets harder from here. That's just them being nasty. I think tiny children. No, no, no seriously. Older, uh, most older parents will try and make you feel like, oh, it's so much harder where I am. I don't think it is. I think tiny babies and toddlers is incredibly physically taxing. Um, I think the primary school years are pretty easy. It's easy. It was easier for me. Oh yeah, I haven't got to that yet. But um, 
Uh, for me, basically, again, it could just be bad parenting. You can stick kids in front of a video, do you know, like and read the Bible with someone. You know, um, as long as they feel like vaguely you're still around and you feed them occasionally, they're actually, they're happier because they know you're around, but you're not kind of hovering like a helicopter and they can set fire to things occasionally. And like, seriously, I think they actually enjoy the fact that we have lives apart from them. Um, so I think that was you know, an easier time. There was a point where I read a book that said that um, pastors, kids, you know, PKs really resent people having coming over for lunch. And so we said to the kids, okay, you know, one week, one Sunday in four, we're not going to have visitors. I vividly remember the kids. They had their noses pressed up, you know, at the, at the screen door going, where are the people? Where are the people? And they, they loved having people over when they were tiny. Um, that all changed um, when they got a bit older. Um, uh, one day, it still makes me cry when I think about it, um, Sophie's bedroom was right at the front door and the doorbell went and as I walked to the front door, I saw Sophie, I think she was about 12, so year five, year six, she was actually under her homework desk. And um, I dealt with the person at the door and said, Sophie, why are you under your desk? She said, I just can't deal with people anymore. Um, so we had a big conversation with the kids and came to the conclusion that what would make Sophie feel really loved is if we had less people in the house. So we made a decision in terms of the 12-month review that we wouldn't have home groups in our house and we wouldn't have night meetings in our house just to give her some space. At each yearly review, she said that she still loved that. And so between the ages of about 12 and 16, we didn't have anyone in our house in the evenings. That was a big cost to us. Uh, but... Soph said now from her vantage point that was a turning point in her feeling like she wasn't just a, a cog in our shiny, shiny empire machine. Um, and, and I think a lot of other people at church felt that that was us kind of coddling her or, and we just kind of went, take a number, this is what we're doing. Um, because we figured that was important to her. Uh, and I, I don't regret doing that. Um, Sandra King, I don't know if she's still in France as a missionary, but I remember her writing an article because she was critiqued uh, by some other people who said, what you're doing is cruel. Uh, you're taking your children off to a foreign country and it's so hard for them. You're taking them away from their grandparents. And she said, no, I'm showing them that the gospel is important. I'm showing them that it is worth actually making sacrifices for. And I think we've wanted to show our kids that the gospel is worth being uncomfortable for, but that's different to we want you to come through for us because of our needs for security and significance. So I think that's the thing you want to think about with your kids. And we're still trying to work that out, even with Luke being at home at 20. Um, I guess the thing that may not be your story, but was true for us or true for my experience was at the time again, where Dremoyne was getting bigger and more complex and more demanding of me in my time and my emotions my kids were hitting their teenage years, and particularly as a dad, I needed to step up and be involved with them emotionally and give them time. And I found that a real challenge, uh, but really important again to do and to think carefully and wisely about time and talk together about how it would work out. Again, the shift worker thing was good. Um, I could... I'd, I would drive my daughter to school one day a week and have breakfast with her on the way and talk with her and... You know, sometimes in year nine, she'd sit there and wouldn't say a word to me and look angry the whole time. And, and other times as she got to year 11 and 12, they were really important times for us. But we really felt the need to invest in them. And as Kathy said, uh, to think through what would be expected of our kids, I think particularly in the church plant, because again, 
often when there's only a few people there, your kids are some of the only kids. Uh, they can feel like they're really important in your in your your church planning uh, goals. So to to think through how you're going to play that and what you're going to expect of your kids. For us, our line was always, we don't expect more of our kids than any other kids in the congregation. And so whenever I felt that someone was talking to them or expecting more of them than anyone else, um, yeah, I'd, I would pretty rapidly take that person to task and, and pull them aside. There was a the point where we didn't have a youth group and our kids were actually going to a big youth group at another church up the road. And our, our leaders started talking about this at the stage. It was a stage we needed to start about thinking about our own youth group. And that was a good thing to be thinking about. But they automatically assumed that my kids would leave the youth group they were part of to be core, core group members, central pillars to this new youth group. And it was a real surprise for them and really difficult for our relationship where I said, no, I'm actually going to work out what's best for my kids and their Christian life. And if they want to stay there, I'm not going to make them come to the youth group here. You might play that differently, but we had to think through and talk through uh, that, all those kinds of things. Um, for Kathy and I, it was a time where I think we need to be even more strategic about bracketing time out to talk about what's working and what's not working uh, in our crazy teenagers and their life, our own marriage and our life together and in what was happening at church. And even more clearly kind of label, hey, this is a meeting to talk about us. This is a meeting to talk about the kids. This is a meeting to talk about church and make sure that the conversation stayed in its box and we didn't start talking about everything all the time. Um, Have you heard that thing that one of the problems for ministers' kids is that they're either puppet or rebel? Um, Again, it's a half-baked psychobabble theory, but I think there's something to it, that, again, in terms of security and significance, the fear that the kids have is that unless I am the perfect Christian kid my parents won't love me and so you either be the kid learns to be a little two-faced hypocritical pharisaical puppet who just does everything that mum and dad want of them so they're the more compliant kind of child and that's a scary thing because their hearts are cold towards the gospel but they do everything on the outside terrified that mum and dad won't love them unless they tick all the right boxes or the rebel goes how unpleasant can I be and I'm really testing out how unpleasant I can be before you, th- that's enough, I can't love you. So we had one puppet and one rebel in our family and it was really interesting watching the different strategies that, that they kind of tended to fall into. Why is that significant for your marriage? Because I think we tend to do that as wives, as my experience. I, I tend towards flip-flopping between puppet and rebel And so that's where my anger came in in the early stages. But it still can come up now in terms of my fear is that we're moving into middle age and Craig will will leave me. He'll move on. He'll find someone younger and better looking with a less flabby stomach. And, you know, my fear means that I will sometimes go into puppet mode. And that's a really bad place to be in because on the outside I'm doing all the right things but for entirely the wrong reason. Um, About four or five years ago there was a really scary spate of – um, very well-established marriages that, that fell apart in, quite ministry. in Christian ministry. Yeah, and you kind of – I kept hearing names of they've broken up and they've broken up and, and I kind of think, whoa. And it, it, 
I wonder how much of that is that sense that sometimes as women we think that godliness is um, suck it up, be stoic, this is how I serve the gospel. And increasingly when I look at marriages much older than mine, that is not the way they do it at all. They're actually very good at kindly expressing their needs and not just being stoic. And so not chucking the the patty and doing the rebel thing, but not being the puppet either, because I think most of us will tend towards the puppet end of things, and that's the most dangerous place to be, I think. Um, Yeah, I I guess it's our our kids um, have now sort of hit adulthood. Um, In some ways, it's a chance for Cathy and I to do things again. Uh, I was reflecting that doing this kind of thing where we sit and talk in groups is something we've done very little of in that period when the kids were growing up. So we went from the stage of doing everything together and loving that, doing very little together. And for me particularly, there's a time of grief. It was difficult in lots of ways in our marriage. And the challenge now to actually do things together again is that we've kind of both grown up and we've changed and we're we're good at doing things but do things differently and we're actually having to learn how to work together again and, and that's a that's actually a big challenge that again you need to talk about and realize that's an adjustment that's a season that changes uh, the other thing that um, has uh, has changed though is that we I guess at DPC we have a staff this is our staff retreat I think um, and that sort of in a way that just having lay leaders and church growing, uh, Kathy felt pushed to the outside. Even more so when staff comes along, came along, Kathy felt really pushed to the outside. And again, I had to think about how do I connect Kathy with things without necessarily her seeing that she's on the staff and part of the staff. And that, those are really tricky things to, to kind of play out. Um, one of the things I think that's been really important for us just in the context we are at Moines, is to have female staff workers, just our demographics and what's going on. But again, um, that, that's really uh, raised for me the issue of how I play that and how Cathy and I play that are really important. So you guys probably have, have known and talked about all of those kind of issues, but it's been really important for me to have clear boundaries with my female staff uh, as a way of caring for them, watching out for myself, but also for caring Cathy in part of the process. So things like never meet with my female staff alone, always in a public place. I'll never pray with my female staff, which seems really weird, but that will create an emotional link that I just don't want to go anywhere there where they're with. And the other thing for us has been I'll say to my female staff, in a way I won't say to my guys, I'll say uh, if you want to talk policy, if you want to talk strategy, if you want to talk about how you're going to use your week, we talk about that when we get together in that public place where we meet. But if you want a shoulder to cry on, it's not going to be mine. You go and, you go and cry with Cathy. And so with our female staff, uh, Cathy's always had a role of meeting up with them on a regular basis to do that kind of thing. The guys, I'm happy to cry with them if they want to cry, uh, but not with the girls. It also means that when it, with Cathy and I again need to talk about how the female staff are going I wouldn't employ a woman that Cathy wasn't entirely happy about me employing, whereas uh, to a lesser extent I'll seek her opinion and be worried about opinion when it comes to the guys. Did you want to say something about that? No. Oh, okay. Does that mean we're at the end? No. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. 
Um, I don't want this to come across as patronising, but it probably will because when someone says I don't want it to come across as patronising, it clearly will be patronising. But um, I think as women, we kind of want our men to to pick up the signals and it makes us feel love when you guys pick up the signals. But as the guys yesterday were saying, men don't tend to pick up signals. So I remember stomping around the house for almost a week, refusing to pick up Craig's shoes, which were all around the house. And eventually I thought, grow up. You know, you're a grown up. Pick up the shoes, just put them away. And I went to Craig and said, Craig, I'm really sorry that I've been so childish and I've been sulking. And he said, I haven't noticed. Do you know, like, I think as women, we invest so much time trying to give out the vibes of what we need from our husbands, partly because I think we've been tricked by rom-coms that that's how, the, how life works, but partly because we, in, as church planner wives, we are desperate to be low maintenance. I think most of us want to be the low maintenance female and we feel guilty when we decide that we are high maintenance. Chances are he married you because there are bits of you that are high maintenance and he loves that about you, but we desperately want to be low maintenance. We, we don't want to be a drain on him. So we think I'm just going to suck it up, suck it up, suck it up until I randomly scream at him. Do you know, like, and you think, dang, I've been so good for such a long time. And then I lose it because he didn't put petrol in the car. And he goes, I didn't put petrol in the car. Seriously, like what? But that's actually, there's a whole lot of things that I've been sucking up. Um, Claire Smith um, said that it's, as I said before, it's not godliness to suck stuff up. It's actually godliness to help your husband to lead you. And this is where the patronizing bit comes in. The part of the way we do that is actually by telling our husbands what we want. And generally, if you ask most husbands, what would you like for your wife? They kind of go, I'd like it if she was happier. That's partly because it's nicer for him when we're happy. But he honestly does. They do like it when we generally are happy and relaxed and sex is better when we're relaxed. And it's a, it's a good thing. So, um, there was a point where Sophie was doing the HSC and was really, really horrid and Luke was in year 10 and he was kind of like, all the time. Um, I was feeling just like the hired help at, at church. Um, Anna had come on board and was doing things heaps better than me and that really, oh. um, I went to my boss at work and she's been married a thousand years and I said, oh. she said, what do you want? And I said, I just want to, I'd, I'd like flowers, I think. And she said, well, have you asked him? no, no, I haven't. She said, well, this is what I did with my husband. I specified what flowers I wanted no, 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 and how often I wanted them. And so I went home to Craig and I said, Craig, you know how I've been angry? Yes. Um, what I would like from you is to know that I'm on your radar. About every three months, I would like roses. And he kind of went, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, though, but I said, they can't be from Woolies and they can't be from a petrol station. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, and he said, what colour would you like? And I said, red. And the lovely thing is, it's a bit sad and autistic, but clearly he writes in his diary because, because it comes, because they arrive at work. They come from roses only. I'm sure they cost a lot of money and they arrive at work and all the other women at work are really, really jealous and they go, is it your birthday? And I go, no, they're from my husband. And I don't say, and it's been about three months. But that means that I can actually put up with a whole lot of other thoughtless stuff 
because I, I know that I'm on, on his radar, I did get back to him and say, I'm getting a bit sick of the red ones. Can I have a different colour? And so these are the ones that came two weeks ago, which are pink. Uh, women, I think it's important that you realise your husbands actually do want to love you. You've got to help them. Help them to lead you and love you by being explicit in what you want from them. And chances are the guys will step up and do that. Okay, we've, we've timed this badly because we've got half an hour for questions. We're hoping to sort of squeeze that out. But um, look, I, th- I think the big thing we're, just to summarise, we're saying is that things will change as your church plan changes. Things will change as your marriage and family change. And you need to be thoughtful. You need to work hard at communicating. You need to enjoy the good things about each different stage. Grieve and be sad and adjust to the things that are different. And keep working at that together because it will be constantly changing and constantly needing to adjust. So, Scott, we throw over to questions now? Yep. Cool. And I'll, I'll hand the mic around so we can yep. record them. But There you go. Chris? I just got told not to be the first to ask a question. <laughs> um that was awesome. Thank you. Uh, about uh, working as well as church planting, uh, we're, we're both working and we're, the discussion yesterday about financials, when do we change that? Can you talk about one of those times when you've changed in that? Just so, have an example of how you work through that? Um, I'll say something briefly then, Cathy. Repeat the question is, can we say something about going out to secular work? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, I guess... Uh, when we started Dremoyne, there was no income and I went out to secular work for three days a week. Um, Kathy was doing some study at uni but not working. Um, and that was, that was the economic survival mode. Um, uh, the other time, though, Kathy's gone. Kathy now works as a chaplain at a girls' school, uh, which is something she's massively gifted at and wonderful at and is a really important ministry. My other observation about that is that um, it's a bit like me going to golf. When we are at Blacktown, I used to go to golf and there was a chance to sort of do something different, get away and, and not think about church and in the stressful weeks come back a bit more relaxed and energised to do things. My observation is that work outside of church has been good for Cathy in a part-time role because it does give her that, that break from the hothouseness of it, the intensity of that, especially in the early, in, in, the, in the church planning kind of phases. But I think the question's for you so you better answer it. Um, yeah, I think work for me, I constantly have to question my motives and think through, am I using this as a way to prop up my ego or as something that actually um, is good for my mental and physical health that ironically I'm actually more useful at church? Um, it coincided for me at Dremoyne at a time when there were a whole lot of really cluey uh, women stepping up into leadership and I think me stepping out to do part-time work gave them some clear air to do that without me looking over their shoulder. Um, so I think it's it's actually worked well for us in that way. Blacktown being a, a poorer area, most of the women don't uh, have education, like degrees, so I fitted well there. Dremoyne I actually fit better being a part-time worker. Um, it's a weird thing to not be working. So um, the fact that I turned up being a uni student helped immediately that I was normal. So I probably, even if I didn't want to work, I would probably contrive some way to be working while I was at Dremoyne to fit in in that way. 
Um, so I think it can d- depend on context, but it also depends on what are my motives. Um, the money has taken a lot of pressure off us. Um, um, coming back to uh, your time in Blacktown, I guess when you transition in terms of leadership from you guys basically making all the decision towards a, having a leadership team, just wondering if both of you can comment on how you've helped each other through that, I guess particularly when Cathy is sort of now not in that, that decision-making loop and yet she, decisions are being made that's going to affect her. Uh, can, you, can you talk through a little bit about how you did that uh, well um, or anything that we can... Um, yeah. Okay, so how do we transition from uh, all the ministry decisions were made by the two of us in the bedroom or the breakfast table to having a, a leadership at church where the decisions were made? And how did we do that well? Very short answer. I think we, we made lots of mistakes at Blacktown. We didn't see that transition coming at all. And I think only afterwards did we realise what we ought to have done. And I think at Tremoyne we've done that a little bit better. Uh, but it's been hard. I think for, for me the, the thing has been to try and work out what decisions... Um, Kathy's very wise and insightful, and so getting her, her input on decisions has been helpful for me before I go to, to leadership meetings. But if church is going to grow, she can't, she can't make, help me with all the decisions. And so for me it's been about cherry-picking. What are the key decisions where Kathy's input is important? Um, it helps her to feel like she's in the loop and consulted, but it's a, a great value to me. And it's helped me stop me from making some really dumb decisions by getting her input. Um, I think one of the things that we did at Blacktown, which was bad, was because I was part of thinking through who would be the good male leaders, we, te- we picked four guys who were very similar in personality to Craig. We learned from that mistake, and I was actually less involved in picking the leaders at Dremoyne and Craig worked harder at picking people who were different to him. And I think that actually helped. Um, I think, again, it's partly just recognising that it's hard. The first time an announcement was made in church that I wasn't part of, and it was a stupid decision, I just thought, idiots, should have asked me. Do you know, like... And I felt very smug. Um, But, again... I think you've just got to count the cost. It's, a, it's a, Be careful what you wish for. If you're church planting, you're wanting something to grow bigger than you. And if what you want to do is be a home group leader, then keep it tight around you. Because you can. As a home group leader of 14, you can keep it there. But I think you've got to count the cost and realise to grow something bigger than that um, is just going gonna to hurt. But um, does that kind of... Is that kind of the question? Yeah. Uh, this is not so much a marriage and ministry as just the movie. Is Mikey on. allowed to ask questions? I didn't. No one told me that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, uh, it was about observing most of the heroes in church planning uh, planter founders stay in one place and then write the book. You guys have moved um, and haven't written the book. Uh, what, what should you look for in the church plan or in yourself in terms of gifts and temperament to know, you know like the guys here, to know whether in 10 or 11 years they may be serial planters rather than planter founders? Um, yeah, that, I feel like that's almost an old, a whole session, but I'll just say something really briefly about that. Um, yeah, I, I'm suspicious of the serial planter thing, the guy who says, oh, I'm gifted as a church planter, and so he, he plans for three years and moves on all the time. My main problem with that kind of model is I reckon that guy never learns from his mistakes. 
He's never around long enough to realise that his ideas are dumb ideas. He just moves on and someone else has to fix up the mess he's been in. And I wonder as well whether he's actually someone who's not good at delegating and, and building a team. And as soon as it gets bigger than me, him, he has a crisis and moves on. So I don't like the model of the serial church planner. Maybe that person does exist, but I'm, I'm somewhat suspicious of it. But at the other end of the spectrum, at some point you're going to leave, whether you're carried out in a box or uh, in some other way. And I think it's... Maybe this, is, again, is my personality. It's not everyone's story. But we've thought, or I've thought, that I think it's good to pick the time to leave when things are going well uh, rather than when they're not going well and when they can build for the future. Uh, so they're the, we've left in those kind of occasions. We haven't, and um, uh, maybe this would happen if we stayed there. I haven't moved on because I've felt... Uh, I, I can't take this group any further. I've reached the limits of my ability to do something with them. That would also be a good time to leave and to try and pick that early. But my observation in church planning is uh, some guys, uh, I, I've seen some church plants where guys stay too long and they leave when the wheels are starting to fall off and the tr- that first transition is really challenging. I don't know. I think church planning has become a movement um, in the last few years that it wasn't when we first started off. So I don't think we read books about it particularly. We just thought, this place needs a church. Let's have a red-hot go. Do you know, um, I wonder how much the stuff coming out of America, how much we can actually translate to the Australian context culturally as well. And I also just have this vague kind of anecdotal theory that you can only work out what you're gifted for by looking back at what you've done. I don't know how predictive you can actually be. And I know Geneva does lots of, you know, testing and stuff, but I just wonder, you just give it a good red-hot go and see what happens. I mean, we haven't really had a plan of we will plant once, we will plant twice. We're not sure if we'll even do it again. It depends what comes up. If a core group kind of presents itself, you know. Um, Just uh, puppet kids. So kids who are the puppets... How do you encourage them in the gospel? Like you talk about them being the more difficult, and I, I hear that. Yep. Um, how, how have you sought to really give them an understanding of grace? Um, be real with them yourself, which will freak them out because they want, usually the puppet kid wants you to be perfect. Um, so I think be more real with them. Um, you talk about the struggles of the Christian life? Yeah. Um, Alan, Kathy, your kids, have you got any insights into this puppet thing? Uh, we, didn't, we didn't have any puppets. We got two that walk with the Lord and two that very clearly don't. Yep. So, oh, our kids are all pretty strong willed and tough like their mother. <laughs> <laughs> I think for, for our particular puppet, um, it's, it's not praising them for external behaviours. Um, when our kids were little, there was this um, parenting movement that came through called EZO, which was very much about external behaviours. And if you tick the boxes, then then you are doing the right thing. I think what we want is heart change in our kids, not external behaviour change. And so I think that's partly why we were really firm on the fact that we didn't want people judging our kids for how they behaved. So if your kid wants to turn up um, to church in bare feet and be really surly, that's cool. Like... So I think that the 
I'm happy to chat with you later. I don't think there's easy things, but I think it's about heart change, not external stuff. And, and so that you want to take away from them any sense that they get their jollies from you thinking that they're really good externally. Um, you talked a little bit about um, as wives, we sometimes there's this fear of stepping back and letting other people kind of take things ahead. Um, because I, uh, I guess sometimes there's a sense of if I'm not doing a certain ministry, well, then what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you kind of maybe what is helpful in that kind of perspective and what can, if you are kind of needing to step out of certain ministries to help them grow, what can we be doing? Yeah. I reckon we get mixed up the difference between serving in a church and helping to create a church. Because surely what we're wanting to do is a little bit like parenting. We want to create functional adults. And so the only way you do that with your kids is what I call considered neglect. They will only learn to pack their lunchbox if you keep putting really weird stuff in it so that they go, I made Luke a pumpkin sandwich once and he just went, clearly you're an idiot. Do you know, like, we... If you, are, if you are too good at taking care of your children, they will just go, learn, you know, I can, I can be as helpless as I want because you'll keep stepping in. I think church planting is all about preparing God's people for works of service. So surely what we want to do, like any missionary, is do ourselves out of a job. And I think as women, because of our fear of maybe I'm not doing it right, we run around doing everything and wanting to be seen to do everything, whereas surely what our job is is to kind of say, well, if I've got a skill, I pass this on to somebody else and push them into the spotlight. So for two reasons, I don't do it, because I don't want someone to do it better than me because it'll make me look bad. And number two, I think that I should be doing it. So a guy who works for Deloitte actually pulled me aside and said, you're moving into your 40s, you should become a consultant in the things that happen at church. It's kind of a waste having you teaching kids church all the time now that we've got other people. Surely you should actually just be a cheerleader for them, resource them, keep the and so that was so such a relief. You know, I thought, I can do that. That would be fun. You know, so it got to the point where I didn't feel guilty. I, I carefully still did enough stuff up the front that people still knew who I was because church was getting to a size where a lot of people hadn't met me. And so it's useful to occasionally do a kid's spot or be seen at the, at the door handing out something. But no, I've, in both church plants, I've got to the point where I'm doing very little. Um, but I'm just I'm being a cheer squad to others, and that's why we've been able to leave, is because we they go oh it's sad the Tuckers are leaving, things will keep going. Uh, whereas I think if if church never outgrows you, that's why you have the feeling if we can't leave because it will fall over because I am the only counsellor to these women and I do all the programming for kids church and I organise the casseroles and so I think you want to do yourself out of a job like any good missionary. Look, I think what I don't want to emphasise is that every couple here will do it differently. So Cathy's actually, she probably worked out, she's very gifted at doing upfront things. She's also very gifted at being a trainer and equipper. And as church has grown, she still does some upfront things, but is also a trainer and equipper of others that they'll shine. But your gifts as wives, as Mrs Church Planner, will be different in every case. And so I think you've just got to work out how can I best serve uh, serve God and serve his kingdom in this situation and 
not be a slave to the expectations of others or some kind of cookie-cutter model of this is what Mrs Church Planter always does because this is what the books say, but work out what's going to work, what's the best way to serve God's kingdom where you are and be content that God understands that. Maybe your husband does and uh, maybe there are a few people at church who will understand as well, but some of them won't. Um, did I pick up that with your yearly reviews, you had your kids in them for some part of that? Yeah. At what point, uh, how much of the actual review on you were they in, involved on? Yeah. Just want to kind of fill that out yeah. a little bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when we did our, our annual review or six-month review, sometimes it was a six-monthly, um, were our kids involved with that and were our kids reviewing us? That's a scary thought. Um <laughs> We, we would largely do that together on our, our own, but as the kids got older, we would talk to them and say, hey, how do you think the last 12 months has gone as a family? Particularly when we got to that stage where they hit their teen years and lots of stuff happened in our house and we started to think through, is this helpful for them? Is this difficult for them? Sophie's hiding under the table again, all that kind of thing. And so we definitely do the review on our own, but then we'd involve them and say, how do you think things are working, guys? And talk about that. They didn't always get their way. But there were lots of positive things about that as well. I think one thing that really the lights went on for our kids is when we moved from Blacktown, where we really loved being at church there, to go to Dremoyne where there was kind of nothing. And just talking about the disciples leaving their nets to follow Jesus and what the costs were. And the kids kind of, the, the lights went on for them a bit that this was actually really costly but really important. And so there are, there are great sort of moments to help them be ministry-minded as you involve them in that kind of review. Um, there's some growing research that a lot of unhappy middle-class kids are unhappy because their parents negotiate everything with them and that there's actually great value in treating kids as kids and basically saying, we're going to Granny's house, get in the car... Do you know, and there's not a discussion about that, you know, like, and so I think as you move into the teenage years, they are ill-equipped to make decisions about their lives, but they need to know that their opinion is heard. Um, but they would sometimes make outrageous judgments of what they thought our family should be like, and you go, thanks for that. Help me to understand what you mean, and we, we do the same pillow talk kind of stuff. Help me to understand, help me to understand how does that feel, how does that feel. We will definitely have that in mind as we make our decision. Um, but I think negotiated parenting is a tyranny for the kids. Uh, could you say a little more about kind of insulating your kids from the expectations of people in your church? I think part of the reason our two older girls, part of the reason our two older girls have walked away is that expectation that they should be, the feeling that they should be Rod and Todd Flanders, if you remember, you know, and that Yeah, our kids worked that out. They laughed at the they laughed at the Flanders till they got to be twelve, thirteen, and then they had this moment of yeah, actually we're the Flanders, aren't we? Uh, yeah. So how do you how do you? And I mean, I know people, and I was never around to give anyone a headbutt to the bridge of the nose that they needed, but people would come and talk to our kids, and they just want to talk about me, which is incredibly boring, but. Um, for our kids, so how do you, you guys no doubt got it right, we didn't, so do you want thoughts? Yeah, no, yeah, we, no, I know we, we certainly didn't get that right, and we, um, 
we worked most of the things out afterwards about what we should have done. Um, I, I guess I'd encourage... Yeah, I guess we... With our kids, we were quite explicit and we actually said, hey, you might find at church sometimes that people have expectations of you. They don't have of uh, other people's kids at church. And we want to let you know that we don't have that expectation of those things. And at various stages as they got to be teenagers, we allowed various things to be optional. So we gave them the choice about whether they'd leave the youth group they loved up the road to come to this youth group. And we said, that's your call and I will back you on whatever call you make. They're at the st- uh, obviously, when they were younger, we would have made that call for them one way or the other. But as they got older, certain things became optional. As they got into late teenage years, we actually said, uh, look, uh, you know, it's getting to the stage where you'll, you need to decide for yourself whether this is what you really believe or just what your parents believe and whether you want to be at church or not be at church and, uh, and, and make those things... I guess as they get older, make them, make them optional at the right time. So we talked a lot to them about them and said, it's a nasty world out there. There'll be people at church who won't treat you like this, but this is how we see things. And I guess the other thing is, sometimes I found out that people were expecting more of them than they ought to have because my kids would dob on them, would say that, and then I would go to people, you know, I would headbutt them. And I did actually take people to task firmly about that. I talked about that with my leaders as well. I talked about that uh, as much as I could generally in, in, in church context of saying, this is an issue for our kids and this is how we're playing that. Yeah, I, 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 don't, think you can, I don't think you can actually guarantee it, but yeah, they're the kind of things we worked on. It hasn't finished. I think it's still hard for Luke. Luke's 20. Because Craig's involved in AFES, he gets really hacked off that some people want to come up and say, ooh, you know, like, I know your dad. You know, like, he goes, you know, like, um, I think it's that kind of uh, being vaguely famous kind of thing in Christian circles. It's a small pond and therefore I think people like to kind of feel like they know someone famous. Luke's really enjoying the fact that he is in tutorials with the daughter of somebody else who's far more famous than Craig and they have eyeballed each other and they don't say anything about it. Do you know like there's just that he like he said it's so lovely. She doesn't talk about it. We don't I don't I found a kinship. Basically I think um, we had to send Sophie away. Um, after the HSC she was in a very bad place and she uh, went and became a nanny and lived with another family in Perth. I think she needed to be on the other side of the continent and she flew under the radar for a couple of years. She's now happy to acknowledge who her parents are um, but we needed to release her and I found that very difficult. Craig took the lead on saying, I think we, we, you need to let Sophie go. Um, I found that incredibly difficult that at 18 I lost her but that's been the making of her um, because I think she just had to get away from our shadow. Um, Again, it sounds like we kind of worked all that out brilliantly beforehand, but it's more a lot of it's more in the revision mirror than anything else. That Sophie's a big personality, uh, like her mum. She uh, and she's sort of flourished, falling a little further away from the tree. Yep. Man, isn't that yeah? Absolutely. We agonised about saying this stuff because most of you guys have got two-year-olds, but the puppet and rebel stuff starts now. Um, if, you, if you do use your children as, as cogs in your shiny empire, you know, it starts now. So that when your kid goes and bites somebody else's kid, 
that's because they're two. It's not because they're the son of a church planter. Do you know? So, <laughs> but seriously, you will feel, even if, they, and I think sometimes the expectations are from others, but I think we generate the expectations that then other people learn from us. Do you know? Like, um, so I think it's, it's gathering and because you're starting off with your, your core group, train your core group right from the beginning to treat your kids like ever, and, and to say it explicitly, my kid's no different. Why do you think that they'd, ex- you know, know the Bible better? Do you know, um, but yeah, you'll, you'll set your wombat tracks now. Um. Um, sorry, we're just, thoughts keep dribbling out, so with this, sorry about that. But um, yeah, certainly there was a time in, uh, in our daughter's early teenage years, around about year nine, where she worked out the way that she could uh, finish every argument by winning would be to say, and I'm not sure I believe in Jesus anymore as well. You know, and, and you can't make me. And you can't make me. And she worked out that it particularly, you know, hit, hit our buttons and hit Kathy's button. And I guess we worked out over time that the answer to that was to say, as you grow up, you'll have to work out whether you believe in Jesus or it's just what your parents have told you. But we will love you just as much if you believe in Jesus or if you don't. And, and to, to say that, to mean that and to keep saying that was we found that really important with our kids. But sometimes I yelled it. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask you. Uh, insulate is the wrong word, but uh, how did you how did you protect your kids when you guys were in seasons when you were tired and worn out and frustrated with things? What what would what were the sort of things that you figured out to do so that they were damaged the least? <laughs> I think the same way? thing that every Christian probably has to do. I think at that point we're no different to the dentist who's overworked or the single mum who's struggling. Um, I think it's as, as, they, as they get older, let them in a little bit on what's going on for you, not so that they feel responsible for you, but so that they realise that they are not causing the problem. Because I think some kids think if only, like, so the, the, the puppet will think if only I was a better child, things would be better. Um, so I think try and let them know. Um, so why is mummy crying? Mummy's crying because she's very tired. Do you know, like, mummy's um, sad. <laughs> um, I think not shielding them from everything. And again, I think it, basic parenting, if you fight in front of your kids, resolve it in front of your kids. Because all kids see if you resolve stuff behind closed doors is they fight and then magically it's kind of fixed. So I think if you're going to start a fight with a four-year-old watching you, continue the fight in front of the four-year-old and they'll watch and they'll go, cool. And then they kiss, excellent, done. And then they wander off. Um, So I think try to help them to see stuff so they don't worry about it, but don't make them feel really drawn in on it. Um, I think it's harder once they get to teenage land because they can become very manipulative of those things and you've got to be careful how much you let them because they'll use it to hurt you back. And you've got to make the judgment call, how, how resilient do I feel? I remember Sophie um, went into um, my room, and I've got permission to, to say this, and she grabbed all of my Christian parenting books and she hurled them at my head one by one. Um, saying, you need to buy more of these because clearly they're not working, you know. Um, but, I mean, she was, she was saying, in a sense, she was saying, I'm frightened, I'm out of control, and you're not helping me. Do you know, 
she was almost saying, please get a book that works because this is frightening. Do you know? Um, so I think, uh, I, I don't think that good Christian families are, are measured by how calm they are. It's about how you deal with the inevitable, you know, volcanoes that come and actually don't just squash them all down, but actually deal with them well. Um, but I think sometimes we think that, that uh, a good church plant grows neatly and a good family is always smiley. I think good families actually deal with problems rather than squashing them under. Um, as the guy, I think, as our kids grew up, two things that I tried to work on. One was we tried not to have conversations that dissed people at church in front of the kids. If we were frustrated with someone or disappointed with something at church or there was a problem or an issue, we'd had those conversations without the kids. We didn't air all the dirty laundry with them. And look, to be honest, we've realised more and more as we talk with them now as adults that they they saw more than we realised anyway without us even talking about it. And I think also as the guy, um, yeah, there will be times when you're tired and when church planning is hard work, but you need to make sure that your diary reflects a commitment to your kids and I would say particularly as they hit high school, you need to actually say no to important strategic things at church because your kids are an important ministry and make sure you're not always out and not always saying yes to things in ministry. And it will cost, it will cost your public ministry to actually have a ministry to your kids and that's how it should be. Craig, can you, you talked about the tendency to overwork. Um, can you talk about holidays and rest? What, what does that look like in, uh, in the Tucker family? Yeah. Um, so talk about holidays and rest. Um, yeah, not always been great. We've, we've slowly worked, about, worked at having a day off and how we do that. We originally had Tuesdays off when it was just the two of us. When our kids hit school, we moved that to Saturday and that almost killed me because uh, it was so hard to put a talk to bed on Friday and actually pick it up on Sunday and think, what, what, why would I say that? What's that about? Um, but to try and do that on Saturday to actually, because that was the day to, to maximise having time with my kids was really important. Um, we, we tried to have, yeah, yeah, holidays were important and we always tried to have holidays we got away from church. Uh, we tended not to, we had lots of great friends at church, but we tended not to holiday with people at church but to get away from church and church people on our holidays. I don't know. Uh, when the kids were in high school, we negotiated with church to, instead of having four weeks annual leave, we took a pay cut and had six weeks annual leave. Um, I think that was a good investment for the way that our family plays. We kind of did the work hard, play hard. So we've had some really fantastic holidays with our kids, really adventurous kind of holidays. Um, other families we know do it quite differently. They need much more regular touch base, whereas our kids seemed happy that every, once every 10 weeks we'd hit it really hard and do something outrageous. Um, but, yeah, other families play it quite differently. Craig, at different points when they were in primary school, he would block out his diary so that he was around, you know, between 3 and 4.30. Uh, because that was a time when the kids wanted to talk um, and then he would then nick off and keep working through the night. That was a cost to me. So there was a lot of, there was probably 10 years where I felt like I was paddling my own canoe a bit more because he was investing a bit more in the kids, but then I got flowers and good holidays. Do you know, so you can't have it all and... <laughs> 
Um, just a, a quick question about um, the ministry models that you, you've got there. How do you manage uh, a mismatch between the, the ministry model that you're working with as a couple and the ministry model that your church expects you to have? Okay. That's a, you sure we've got time for this question, Scott? Uh, rats. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, hopefully in a church plan, you've actually got more say in putting that into practice than if you go into an established ministry. So this might be one of those times we actually want to spare a thought for your your peers at college who are in places where they've got less say and less freedom than you do. Um, I, I guess I've always been upfront about saying uh, this is where our family needs to be at or we just won't cope being here. And this is what, if you want to have us, this is how at this stage with where our kids are at, we need to play that. And I guess, I suppose I've been, I would be prepared to walk if that didn't happen. Um, yeah, but hopefully in a church plant, you've actually got more opportunity to carve out that role than other people do. Um, I came to the conclusion fairly early that I will assume that everyone likes me unless they tell me otherwise and that they have no expectations of me unless they tell me. Um, and I consciously hang on to that. I, I don't know. I mean, I know of a couple of churches where women have taken um, pastors' wives aside and said, you should do blah, blah. But generally, it's not an explicit thing. And I wonder, if they don't tell you, I'd just barrel on and do it. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sure people have got expectations of me, but I don't know what they are because I don't ask them. Uh, so <laughs> and I assume that they're happy. So. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, I'm, I'm real thankful that you guys have been so open and, uh, and honest. Uh, it's a real blessing to have mature ministry couples amongst us, and I think it's one of the strengths of, of the Geneva Network um, that there are elders in the room who are willing to invest back into, uh, into you guys. So um, it's, it's, it's been a great blessing hearing you this morning. Um, Craig, uh, I just wanted to make a quick announcement to you guys. Uh, Craig... Craig's going to be coming on board as the uh, as a coaching director in February 2015. Uh, so John John Warner's been doing a fantastic job. Uh, great strengths in uh, in knowing people, relating to them, serving them, loving them, uh, hearing hearing them pour out about their uh, their issues with you guys as coaches. Um, and John's been a, a real blessing over the last two years, and and what we needed after having Cole. Uh, run the ministry uh, amongst the network. Uh, John's John's got itchy feet. He wants to plant another church. He wants to see uh, South Australia one for Christ. And so, um, yeah, I've been real thankful for John's ministry to me um, and to the network and, and having John and Gita here over the last few years and, and God willing over the next, you know, five to ten years as well, uh, I think we'll continue to strengthen this network that is seeking to see churches planted uh, not just here in Sydney but across Australia. Uh, Australia needs the gospel uh, always and, and more than ever. And so Craig's going to be coming on next year in February. Uh, he'll be building into and investing in our coaches. Um, and God willing, we're going to see our planters become coaches uh, and, and feeding back into, uh, into planters who are starting around the place. So um, we'll announce it a few more over, over the next few weeks, but just wanted to let you guys know that uh, Craig and Kathy will you know, be spending a bit more time amongst the network, which I think will be a great blessing. Um, so I'm just going to pray and then, uh, and then we'll head out for morning tea. Heavenly Father, we just give thanks for uh, the wisdom of these guys. Uh, thanks for the opportunity we've had just to uh, yeah, listen to their experiences, to learn, to, to wrestle and reflect uh, in, our, in, in our own marriages um, and also have insight into their parenting and their 
uh, leading of a church through different stages. Heavenly Father, we do, we do pray the fruit of that might be a, a confidence in you, uh, that you'll be at work in the lives of the people that you've given us to minister to, uh, and a confidence that, uh, yeah, that, that the gospel will transform and change even us. Um, and we pray and ask that that might be the case. Amen.